bet. House, tent floor, family, in. How can a young man keep his way pure by living according to your word? I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Your word. Nice stuff. Okay, let me uh, pick this up. I see the two Garrett women are still not here. This is, it doesn't surprise me. I just am making a... You know, general yeah. general observation. Just preparing us for the harassment you'll be going <laughs> up momentarily. Let's see here. Okay, we've got this, and we've got some couple prayer requests. Uh, just so you know, uh, some of you do know this because you are on Facebook. Uh, Isaac in Uganda had a terrible car accident. He's okay, but his car is destroyed, and uh, his laptop was ruined. And so uh, he's a little bit behind as far as what he can do now, because without a car, he can't uh, minister to all the people he's been helping out in the, you know, the backwoods. So uh, just making an appeal that if anybody wants, <laughs> excuse me, if anybody wants to help him out, I, does he have any medical bills? Was he hurt? No, it was, he, all the injuries he had was due to the seatbelt right. and the airbag. Okay. And I didn't see anything about medical bills, but I wondered today if somebody he said else. Pretty much, that's that's okay. all his injuries are. So. Okay, so all he needs is enough money to get a new car, which cannot be cheap, and uh, also get a laptop. And then I'm sure there's going to be other expenses that will arise from this. But if you want to help Isaac, if you can help him, you have uh, over there I don't know. Somebody emailed him, and I saw an email on that before I left the house, and I haven't seen an answer since. So I don't know if it was insured. My guess is no, but anyway. Um, and then Epaphras, the pastor in Tanzania, uh, I mentioned him in the past. He had back surgery, and it came out okay, which I'm very happy about that. He's a nice guy, but he cannot preach for four months. Wow. And so, yeah, he's limited in what he can do. And so uh, keep Epaphras in prayer for healing. And uh, let's see here. Keith Helm, he's here in Sarasota. He has a tumor that's wrapping around his colon and it's causing a lot of pain and difficulty. Uh, the chemotherapy has not been working and they are recommending he go to Moffitt because they cannot, uh, they, they say they, it's too dangerous to uh, do surgery on him. Uh, so they're gonna send him to Moffitt for specialty, but keep uh, Keith in prayer as well. So I've got those prayer requests. And then we have, we'll, we'll do that first. Heavenly Father, uh, you've certainly heard those prayer requests and uh, we would lift them up to you, and I'm sure there are others in the email that I haven't gotten to because we've had a busy day here, Lord, but uh, uh, you know every person that is out there that has needs. You know all of the people that are struggling in so many ways, and a couple ladies here in the church that are having some difficulties. We would lift them up, and uh, Lord, just be with your people. Help them if things do not get better to understand at least why these things are happening and that you can still be glorified through their trials. And Lord, uh, also Emma in the hospital, we lift her up in prayer. She's got a long, difficult road ahead of her. So certainly uh, ask that your hand would be with her as well. And uh, Lord, we have a class about to begin and we would ask that your hand would be upon it so that if there's anything that is not taught properly that you would alert us to that and uh, so that we would have proper doctrine to pass on to others. 
Thank you for this wonderful opportunity to come into your presence and to share your word. And we love you, we praise you, and we exalt you. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, I didn't mention Emma. I visited her in the hospital today, the girl that's 34 and had a stroke. And uh, she is uh, uh, at least able to say a couple words now. She can move her left arm and left leg, no problem, but her right arm and her, especially her right arm, they say that's the last thing to uh, come back is the arm. Your legs tend to regenerate quicker for some reason. I don't, I don't know why that is, but... Uh, she's got no feeling or anything in her right arm. Poor girl. Uh, she's got a long road ahead of her, and so keep Emma in prayer as well. Um, let's see here. Today is the 26th, 26th of May. Mm -hmm. All right, May 26th. Okay, where is the joy? On Wednesday, May 24th, 1738, John Wesley grudgingly accompanied a friend to Aldersgate Street in London for a meeting of the Moravians, the followers of Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. There, the leader was reading Martin Luther's preface to his commentary on the Book of Romans. In his journal, Wesley recorded what happened that night. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins. But it was not long before the enemy suggested, this cannot be faith, for where is thy joy? That night, John went to see his brother Charles, who himself had been converted just three days earlier. Charles was overflowing with newfound joy, but John had no such feelings. The next day, after attending a service at St. Paul's Cathedral, he recorded in his journal, I could taste the good word of God in the anthem, which began my song shall always be of the loving kindness of the Lord. With my mouth, I will ever be showing forth thy truth from one generation to another. Yet the enemy injected a fear. If thou dost believe, why is there not a more sensible change? I answered, yet not I, that I know not. But this I know, I have now peace with God. Two days later, on May 26, 1738, John, perplexed he still did not have the joy he felt he should have, went to seek the counsel of John Tolstig, an older Moravian friend who had befriended him during his missionary days in Georgia. Tolstig, I guess that's how you say this guy's name, whatever, was passing through London on his way back to Herrenhut, the Moravian headquarters in Saxony, Germany. Wesley explained to this guy uh, that he knew that he had experienced the new birth and that his salvation rested not on good works but on the death of Christ for him. But he had no joy and was still buffeted by temptations. What should I do, he asked his friend. Uh, his, friend answer, his friend's answer was, you must not fight them as you did before. You must flee from them the moment they appear and take shelter in the wounds of Jesus. After his visit with his friend, John Wesley went on to Evensong at St. Paul's Cathedral, where he found further encouragement as the choir sang, My soul truly waiteth upon God, for of him cometh my salvation. He verily is my strength and my salvation. He is my defense, so that I shall not greatly fall. Day after day, he spent so much time in prayer and found himself growing more in spiritual strength so that though I was now assaulted by many temptations, I was more than conqueror, gaining more power thereby to trust and to rejoice in my Savior, in God my Savior. Yet joy continued to elude him. A few days later, he wrote in his journal, I determined if God should permit to retire for a short time into Germany, 
I had fully proposed before I left Georgia so to do. If it should please God to bring me back to Europe, and I now clearly saw the time was come, my weak mind could not bear to be thus sawn asunder. And I hope that conversing with these holy men who were themselves living witnesses of the full power of faith and yet able to bear with those that are weak would be a means under God of so establishing my soul that I might go on from faith to faith and from strength to strength. Three weeks after his conversion at the Aldersgate meeting, Wesley left with Tolshig and several others to go to Herrenhut, the Moravian center in Saxony. There in Germany, he grew in his newfound faith. When he returned to England three months later, the joy of the Lord had become his strength. John Wesley learned a valuable lesson in the days following, immediately following his conversion. He learned that faith did not depend on feeling. Some Christians experience joy, great joy at conversion, others do not. Salvation is not a matter of emotions. I'm so glad they're saying this final thing here. I was gonna say exactly what they're saying. It is wholeheartedly putting our trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Philippians 1.25, you will grow and experience the joy of your faith. I was going to say exactly what they said at the end. I have read commentaries from Mormons where they were baptized into the Mormon church and they had the exact experience that Charles Wesley said he had. I was overcome with a warm feeling and sensation and it was the most delightful experience of my life. I've read that with uh, people that became Masons. I've read that commentaries of people that have gone into other things and they've said, it was the greatest experience of my life. I felt this warm sensation and I knew it was real. If you depend on your feelings for your walk with the Lord, you are depending on the wrong thing. I hate to tell you that. John Wesley knew that he was saved. He just didn't have the joy of the Lord. That is something that must be developed. Now, I'm not saying that you can't feel joy when you feel the weight of your sin leave you. I know I did. I know I did. Okay, But that doesn't mean that, one, you're either going to experience it continually, or two, that it will come at all. Okay, Because some people just don't process things the same way. But if you understand the gospel, that Christ died for your sins, Christ was buried, Christ was raised again, you call on the Lord as Savior, then you will be saved and you process that mentally and you say, I have done what the Bible says. You have done what the Bible says and that is what the Lord expects, okay? To go out and be baptized into the Mormon church and you feel a warm, fuzzy sensation does not mean you are saved. You are not, okay? So that is something that people need to understand. I had this sensation at my conversion so I know it was true, okay? If you understood it, the weight of your sin being taken away, and you had a joy from that, that may be one thing. But if you just suddenly had this yeah. experience, I wouldn't trust that as far as I could throw, who's a, you're a big guy, Tony. I wouldn't trust that as far as I could throw Tony. And I bet you I couldn't throw you 30 inches, not even 15 inches. For, anyway, there you go. You understand that that there is something to be said about emotions in faith. And I've said this at least 10,000 times in this church. We are never to let our emotions drive our theology, ever. But we are to let our theology drive our emotions. If we are emotional about what Christ did for us, if we are passionate about people being saved, if we are emotional about the change that other people are going through because they've gone from alcoholic to preacher or whatever, 
that's a great thing. But if we are taking our emotions and driving our theology based on that, we are making an error every single time. Do not do that, okay? Let your theology drive your emotions and you will always be in the right spot because theology must be paramount. It must be because this is the word of God and this is how we know what is correct and what is not. Not this here. What does it say, Burke? Uh, the heart, Jeremiah? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Okay? That's all there is to it. I would never trust that. Ever. Trust the Lord. Yeah. <laughs> That'll give you a warm feeling. He said they got the baptistry water too hot. That'll do it. That's for sure. Okay. Um, we have... Um, uh, we've done that. We've done that. We've done that. Okay. We're ready to start into the book of... Philippians. We're in chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 18, but there may be a, a point you want to back up to. I don't yeah, know. Back up to 15. 15. Before you go any further, what I was thinking of that whole time that Wesley was going through that thing, it's like almost like Joshua with the fleece. Oh, yeah. It's like you got to show me that it's wet and the rest is dry. Or No, no, no. Everything's wet except for that is dry. It's like, come on. It's like, you know, do you believe or not? And do like, you believe? You know, yeah. Does the like Lord a, say this is the case or not? That's, mm -hmm. that's it. And J Charles Wesley, I would not trust his conversion as much as I would trust John's who didn't have any joy for a long time because what did he do? It says he worked out the joy of the Lord. Right, right. He, he processed it. He understood that he was saved, but there was something lacking. Well, what do you do? You get into the word and you learn how to obtain the joy of the Lord. It's not something that the Lord's going to come and, okay, let me roll up my sleeves here. Start injecting, Lord. It doesn't work that way. This is where it comes from right here. This is where we find the joy of the Lord. And if you're not in this and you're having a bad time, your life is miserable, you need to be in this more. This is where we will d derive our joy from, is from what Christ has done for us and what it means in the future for us. Right now is, you know, I, I hate to say this. I've said it a couple classes ago. Right now is about as bad as it's going to get in this world as far as I'm concerned. I don't mean that it's not going to get worse. I'm talking about the state of morality, the state of, of things. If this is what we're supposed to be happy in this world, we're getting older. We're getting, you know, every day we get a little more decrepit. Some young guy that was in the church a little while ago, he said, man, I'm feeling older all the time. And I said, well, me too. Okay. And uh, I won't say who it was, but anyway, he... Uh, uh, and he's young, right? I mean, think about it. If this is where our joy is supposed to be is right here, but what Christ has promised us, that's where the joy is. That's what keeps me going every day. That's why I get up and I say, I don't want to get up today, but I know I should. I've got this commentary to get out. And then I, you know what? Burke did something to me for me today. I sent you a response. You probably didn't. Okay. Did you read it? Okay, here's what he did. He liked the life application from the commentary that I did on the book of Acts this morning. Well, it was this morning, right? Okay. So he sent it to me. He said, whatever he said, well, oh, this is so wonderful or something. And I actually sat down and read it and thought, hey, that's really wonderful. I typed the thing. I quality checked it at least two times. And then I put it into the computer yesterday so it would start and then I put in the uh, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, vocal and the YouTube commentaries first thing in the morning and I publish it. But now I've gone through that thing four times and I've never taken the time to read what I typed. And so that, thank you for doing that because 
you know what? I will go back. I'll do these sermons. And no kidding, I'll even do them on Sunday morning. And I'm sitting here on Sunday morning and I'll think, you know, I never thought of that. Something that I've got in the sermon because I'm so involved in the process that I'm not thinking about what came out of me on Monday when I typed that 10 weeks ago. So it's good to stop and to contemplate what the Lord has in his word, what the Lord is doing with us. I know that may sound bizarre, but you, you get so involved in what you're doing and you want it to be so good for people that you're really not taking it in yourself okay. from the time I typed it. It was so long ago that I really, you know, what were you going to say? It's too bad that you should read more. I, I should read more, again, I guess. Yeah, I should take the time and read this every day. The what? I'm <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? You'll so hear me thought. say during these Bible classes, I'll say, um, uh, you know, I'll talk about Calvinism or something, and I'll stop and we'll go through. And then the next three paragraphs down, yeah, there the it is. Thing, right? It's the same thing that I typed eight years ago. So <sighs> whatever. But I don't like to read these in advance because then I'm going to be jaded about what we're doing in the class. So I don't know what 318 says from when I typed it back. It has to be at least eight years ago because we went through Revelation, and that was two years long almost. And, you know, then before that we had Hebrews, which is almost as long as Revelation. And so it's been it's been quite a while since I typed this, but okay. Um, Fifteen is where I will start. All right. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join with others in the following and in following my example, brothers, mm. and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. 18. For, as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Okay, this is close, but it's worth reading it. For many of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Okay, and you can imagine how much that uh, uh, bothers Paul. Um, just this morning, I started Acts 8 three days ago. And just this morning, I typed about um, uh, 8.3. What did I type? And uh, it's something to do with what, oh, I know what it is. Let me read you the verse. It has to do exactly what he's talking about, enemies of the cross of Christ. And so I'm going to read you the, what I've typed over the past three days, just the verses, not the commentaries. We'd be here all night. Um, now Saul was consenting to his death. That's how chapter 8 begins. Stephen was stoned. He died. Chapter 8. At that time, a great persecution against the church uh, arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout uh, the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men, oh, I'm sorry, yes, that's right. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Uh, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Actually, I typed that yesterday and then today. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. So in short, uh, yesterday I made the comment that, you know, here Paul was an enemy of the church. And yet his being an enemy of the church actually prompted what transpired that the Lord said would happen in Acts 1.8, which says that you, this, uh, this word or this gospel will be preached in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And if it wasn't for his persecution, these people, they wouldn't have scattered. Okay, And so he was there fulfilling the word, but at the same time, he carried all of the guilt in his heart of having done this. 
okay, and having been an enemy of the cross of Christ. And so when he says right here what he just read, uh, where was it? 18. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Okay, that was him. So he has every right to say this. He has every right to say that these people bring him to tears. And he's going to go on and he's going to say how pitiful their state is. We'll go on. I'll just read it and then we'll read it again in a minute. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. He thought he was doing heavenly things when he was doing what he was doing until the Lord personally interceded to call him as an apostle. Okay, that's what it took for him to see that. And so he has every right to say, for many of whom I have told you often, and now you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. And that takes us right back, before we even get into our commentary, to the book of Galatians. How does he end it? He says here uh, in verse 16, uh, verse, um, uh, now where is it? Six, uh, let him all good things. He says, oh, here it is. Um, Verse 14, 614, but God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. See, he's that's his whole life. It's the cross of Christ. And now he sees that people are working against it just like he did. Imagine, imagine the feeling that he had in him. Um, before I read you my commentaries, I should note that Tony is going to be leaving Monday. Is that right? Tuesday. Tuesday. Okay. He's going back up to Canada. So it's been wonderful to have you here. Did you get my email? Yeah. Okay. Uh, have you responded yet? No. Uh, no. The one that I sent this morning. Um, not, no, not oh, okay. Well, check that out and let me know tonight or tomorrow morning by the time I wake up so we can maybe work something out. I'm not going to promise, but I, th I think we can if it will fit your schedule. Yeah. And then uh, Mike here, just so everybody knows, this is third time coming and uh, he, uh, it, maybe it's your fourth. You came on your birthday one time for uh, uh, the first yeah, one. Fourth time. Fourth yeah. time, okay. And he drove down today from South Carolina because he, I, no, South Carolina. South, South. South, yeah. I always get it wrong too. You got Charleston and you've got um, uh, the other one, uh, Charlotte. And they always, I always get the two confused. But he drove down from South Carolina so that he could attend the final Deuteronomy sermon because wow. he's been following along with us all this time. And so thank you to both of you for making the effort of coming to Sarasota. All right, uh, now we're in 318. As noted in the previous verse, which is verse 17, the words of Paul seem especially directed to those who lived out their supposed Christian experience in licentiousness and in the pursuit of worldly things. This is in contrast to the Judaizers in the sense that they discounted the work of Christ and exalted the law of Moses. So there is a little contrast in Paul as opposed to these people. But either way, they were enemies of the cross of Christ. They looked to a reward, meaning the Jews, but they looked to it as an earned badge of merit, not as a gift received because of the work of another, which is a huge distinction between Judaism and Christianity. It is also, and I know this will offend some people that are listening, it is also a huge distinction between 99% of the people's thinking in Roman Catholicism and Christianity. There are some Roman Catholics that get it, okay? But I would say that if there's a billion of them, that the number is not big, that actually get that Christ is the focus. Totally, wholly, and that 
it is his work and not their work at all because the Roman Catholic Church is a church of works. And that's why, you know, when um, I was uh, interviewing some Jewish people that were uh, uh, talking about, I interviewed them for uh, when I was going to Southern Evangelical, I had to interview some people of another faith and they uh, got along with the Catholics very well sure. because they, even though they didn't agree on the theology, they agreed on the fact that they were working their way to heaven and it was all about what they were doing. And so there was this mutual understanding and I've heard Jews say that um, we're just like the Catholics. We let the rabbi, the Catholics let the priest worry about the next life and we worry about this life. And so they all think the same way. Oh, the priest will take care of my sins. That's why I go in there. He takes care of it. They're not thinking that they have a need for the atonement of Christ because the priest just says his things and go say these Hail Marys, which are works, or go do this, which are works, and then you'll be forgiven. Okay? It is a works-based salvation. And I don't know how many Catholics there are out there that get Jesus, but I do not believe that it is a great number of that church. And so... You need to, when you're talking to a Catholic, let them know that there is no works that can save you. Zero. There's none. It is solely the work of Christ. Another, with a big capital A. The people Paul speaks of here simply treat the world as the great reward, and they revel in what it offers. And yet they claim that they are followers of Christ. Now, obviously, these people are, he's going to talk about, are more debased than others, and they claim they're Christians, and so that would more follow along with some of these denominations that have just gone completely astray and they're out there living with homosexuality in the churches they're ordaining them as I'm sorry the word does not allow that it does not allow that and yet they claim they are followers of Christ this is why he now notes their walk a walk is the way that you live it's your conduct in Christ in the previous verse he asked that those who walked in accord with his walk meaning in a life lived to Christ were to be emulated as a pattern. Now he says, for many walk, as a contrast to what he had just said. He then notes, of whom I have told you often. This is not something that suddenly appeared while he was away from them. Instead, it is something that he had been warning about all along. It, when he says, I told you often, you can see him in the church saying the same thing again and again and again to people. You know, somebody walks into church and he says, well, you know, they got the other church down the road and they do this and that. And Paul's saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Let me remind you what I've already told you for the 14th time. Please don't do that, okay? This is about holiness. This is about being more like Christ at all times. This is about growing in Christ. And as I said, this goes back to what we talked about. I think it was last week. It might have been two weeks ago where you have... Uh, people that will accuse believers of antinomianism, which means that you don't have any law at all, that you're saved, and that you are telling people that they can do whatever they want because they're not going to lose their salvation. And that is drawing a red herring over what is being taught. What is being taught is that when you are saved, you are saved. Nothing is going to change that. That is what this Bible teaches. When you come to Christ, you are sealed with the Spirit, etc., and you are saved. And they will say, well, if you're saying that, then you are saying that they can do anything and they can remain saved. And as I said, yes, that's true, but that's not what I'm saying. I am saying that you are to walk in holiness. The walk is what you do after salvation, not before. And if what they are saying is that I am wrong, it means that 
their doctrine is based on what? Works. Works. If you tell somebody that you must do this or not do that in order to prove your salvation, then you are preaching a gospel of works. And I've said this a million times. If, in fact, you can lose your salvation today, or if you can lose it next year, or if you can lose it 99 years from now, it doesn't matter when. Salvation is a thing. If you can lose it any time, then it was always of works, and it was never of grace. Salvation is of grace by faith, and that is it. There is nothing you can do to add to this. By grace, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, and not of works, lest any man should boast. If I am saved today, and I do something that can take that away seven years and three days from now, then that means I had to work in order to keep being saved. That is not the gospel. So what they are teaching is what's false, and they are also imputing a lie to what I am teaching by saying that I teach that you can do anything you want. I've never taught that. You are to walk in holiness. If you don't, it's true. You will still be saved. But I'm not saying you can do whatever you want. That is not what the Bible says. The Bible says that you are to do this and you are to do that. You are the one that has to go stand before the Lord and face the consequences of your salvation, meaning your life in your salvation. There's a big difference, and people will try to pull these things over your eyes, and they'll try to point fingers at you, and if you're not prepared to answer those things, and you say, well, what, how do I answer that? The answer is that nobody teaches that you have license to sin. You are saved unto holiness. If you sin, because every person in here is going to sin by the time they get home today. I'm certain of that, okay? That's what we are. We are, as Chris says, sin sacks. It's in us. We're infected with it, okay? We're going to do that. But our goal is to live in holiness. It is to learn the Bible and to conduct ourselves the way that Paul would ask. Big difference between the two, but people will pull one thing over your eyes and they'll say, see, and be ready to answer that. No, the Bible says that you are not to do that. That is what I teach. If they don't do that, that is not my fault. That is their fault, and they will be accountable for that, just as I will be accountable for my own sin. Okay, that's the answer that you give them. All right. The Bible says, for many walk. We are supposed to walk as Paul said. They are not walking. That is a contrast. He then notes of whom I have told you often. This is not something that suddenly appeared while he was away from them. Instead, it is something that he had been warning about all along. Just as we do during every Bible study, don't do these things. Make sure you act holy. Be right in your conduct before the Lord, etc. For this reason, it is an incipient infection. It is one that constantly needs to be warned against. Constantly. And so he says, and here's the problem. When it's not warned against, churches start to do this. They start to get off of the path. And that's why we have churches that once were okay churches, maybe not great doctrine, but they were okay understanding the grace, the need for holiness, and all of a sudden they're ordaining homosexuals. The Bible doesn't allow that, but they have allowed this incipient infection to not be treated. And that's a problem. Remember the, what was it, this past weekend's Prophecy Update. Okay, what was it, 42% of the pastors out there are biblically grounded. And then you get down to the associate pastors and it's down to 31% or something. And you get down to the student, the, the Bible teaching student pastors. What do you call them? Uh, youth. Youth yeah. pastors, thank you. Uh, 
and they're down to 13% that are biblically oriented. That is a problem with the lead pastor because the lead pastor never should have put that person in as a youth pastor, ever, okay? It's better to not have a youth pastor and say, if you want to come to this church, until we get a youth pastor, you're going to need to show up in the, the halls with the rest of the people during the service. And I will say this, okay? Of the churches that I visited and the people I visited with when I went around the U.S. in 2010, and there were a lot of them because there's 50 states, and a lot of people invited me just to stay with us on the way. The ones that had the most adjusted children were the ones that had the children that attended in the church with them, not in Sunday school, in the church with them. Those were the most adjusted families that I saw, the ones that had their children not go to church or the ones that had their children go off to Sunday school, there were problems in that family. So I will tell you that there is something to be said. Even if the kid doesn't know what the pastor is speaking about, he's assimilating the fact that the parents are learning something and he's getting some information as well. Little children aren't dumb. They assimilate some of what is being said, okay? So it's just my thing, all right? There is this incipient infection that Paul is writing about. It is one that constantly needs to be warned against. And so he says, and now I tell you even weeping, Paul's words. It was such a damning heresy that it literally brought him to tears. How could someone hear the message of Christ, claim that they had received it, and be converted, and yet continue to live in the world as if for the world? It broke his heart. And in fact, they had taken the grace of Christ and turned it into a badge of greater sin than they previously engaged in. And yes, there are people that have been saved in churches that now attend churches that do exactly that. They're in greater sin now in the churches that they have, maybe because they moved to a new town, and oh, there's a United Methodist Church right down the road. We'll go there. And they're doing things in that church that are not even mentionable. And they're doing it openly. It is a concept that he addresses also in Romans 6. All right? He says there in Romans chapter 6, this is the responsibility of the pastors in the church and the people to hold the pastors to a better standard. And like I said, if the pastor is not holding the youth pastors to a standard, there's 13% of them that have a biblical worldview, there is going to be a lot of damage to the next generation in this country. They're not going to get what they need. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it. That's Paul's words. Okay, that is what the Bible teaches. I teach eternal salvation because that is what the Bible teaches. That is what the prescriptive epistles of Paul teach. You can take any verse out of the Gospels or some other place in the Bible and you can come up and say, see, you can lose your salvation. All right? Um, if you use it, this is one of the things I should remind you of. If you use words from Matthew, Mark or Luke, who is the audience in those three Gospels? It is the Jews under the law, Christ fulfilling the law for the people of the world. That is the context of what is being said there. If you take verses out of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you apply them to your current doctrine, you will, not maybe, you will have wrong doctrine. You will, okay? The reason why is because the two contradict each other 
in this dispensation. They don't contradict each other in the Bible because they're not speaking to us in this dispensation. Different things happen in different dispensations that lead to a resolution of why these two ideas are seemingly contradictory. For example, uh, Jesus says, pray that you may be found, that you may be counted worthy. Okay? Are we to do that in the church? No. Absolutely not. We are worthy because Christ died for us and that's why we are in the church. We're not to pray that we're, that's questioning God's integrity, saying that you're saved by grace through faith. When he says, pray that you may be found, counted worthy, he's speaking to the Jews about an issue that applies to them under the law, okay? Or at the end of times before they come into the kingdom age, okay, during the tribulation period. So when he says that, he is saying something that if we do that now, oh Lord, I pray that I'm going to be counted worthy, that is shaming the blood of Jesus Christ, the efficacy of the cross. We're supposed to say, thank you for having saved me. I understand that I am unworthy, but because of Christ, I am worthy, okay? We don't need to pray that. You will always always have a contradiction in your theology if you mix your dispensations like that, okay? So when, folks, so when folks are saying that, like, okay, he, this, this is what Jesus said, right? you obviously do not even trust Jesus. And they Jesus. do that and all the like, time. Okay, great, fine. And I, I'll, he did say that, but what did he tell the woman about with... Uh, uh, John A, go and sin no more. No, 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 well, that, but oh, also okay. the, uh, the one with the... Uh, I'm trying to remember where it was. They left to get some peace and... Uh, the woman came up and said, "My daughter is is uh, is uh, possessed, and I need you to do something." And like, and he just ignored her. Right. And they're going like, "Well, send her away." It's like, well, and like finally she goes, he goes, he goes, "Your faith is done, but I'm not here for you. I'm here for the lost sheep the lost of the sheep. house of Israel." Right. So like, okay, who's he talking to? And like, if he's not here for her, or a Gentile, right? What are we? Then the context is obviously, as you're noting, right. under the law fulfilling the law so that Israel can come out of under the law. That's right. exactly right. And so why did he say, okay, your daughter is healed? Because she said something that was true in any dispensation. Lord, even the dogs eat the bread that falls from the table. And he said, your faith is great. He understood. She understood that he was not there for her. She had no right to what he was doing exactly as he is noting and yet she said but crumbs fall that the dogs eat and i may just be a dog but i am entitled to the crumbs and he said your faith is so great your daughter is healed that is exactly right yes dogs are gentiles that's right dogs are gentiles that's exactly right caleb okay the guy in okay Absolutely right. People, if they try that with you, and they, and they do it a lot, right, and open on Facebook, they'll try to say, well, you must not trust Jesus. No, you don't know your proper dispensationalism. And that's why your theology is bad, okay? That's why you are confused in your theology. Be sure to make, identify who is being spoken to, why are they being spoken to, what is the context of what is going on around them? Because if you don't take that into consideration, you are going to have a problem with your theology. That's, that's a very good example there, that you just 
ask them, well, who is he talking to and why would he say that to her? <laughs> They'll never answer that one. Oh, no, they I won't because they don't read their Bible and they don't keep things in the proper context. And that must be the case. It must be. All right? I'm not trying to slam these people. It's just that they are not processing properly what is going on. And because of that, they will have an insecure walk before the Lord. They will believe that you can lose your salvation. They'll believe that they have to do this. And, you know, if they do that, they'll lose their salvation. Okay? That is a problem. That is a problem because Paul does not teach those things. There was a gal who came here a few weeks ago. She was sitting like in the third row back. And she said something that was so smart about knowing your Bible. Oh, yeah. Did you hear what she said? No, I didn't. Okay, but well, she said, she said, she goes, people that are out in the casinos who look for counterfeit dollars. Oh, yeah. They don't know what counterfeit dollars look like. But, but they, they know, know what, what the, the real, real ones, ones look, look like. like. So That's right. I remember her saying that. <laughs> it's like yeah. so stupid. As know long as you Bible, know what the real like one it. is, then you can weed out the counterfeit. Right. But you can't do that unless you are studying this word every single day. Okay. He warns that being in Christ means living in holiness, not in greater sin. For those that would presume to teach this or to follow such teachers, he says that they, Paul's words, are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Such people are not just unknowing and uncaring about Christianity, they are actively enemies of it. Christ counts them as such. They are destined for a very bad end unless they repent, come to their senses, and call on Christ in truth. Okay, I brought this up a million times in this class, and it's an example that is very clear in Scripture. I got this question two times within 30 minutes this week, and I haven't even talked about it in this, you know, a, a month or two, okay? And then I got a third one. So finally what I did after having done this, you know, somebody will send me something and I'll answer it. I'll type it up and I'll answer it, and then I'll just send it to them. And then two months later, I'll get the same question. I'll think, I wish I had saved that. And so I type it all up again. I'll say, well, nobody's going to ask that again, so I send it. Because I got it three times in one day, it was a lesson for me. My friend Sally, or the church down the road, or, you know, all three of them had their own thing, but they all asked the same question. How do I tell them? How do I defend this? Because I know that it is correct. But how do I tell them that women are not to be ordained as elders? And so I typed it up. I copied it for the second one, and I copied it for the third one, and I've got it on a document. So now I just, here, read that, okay? Because the Bible says it. And here's where the Bible says it. One of them was the old excuse. That's cultural. Paul was speaking in a cultural context. I said, no, that is prescriptive, and that is an epistle which is in the Bible for the church age. That means it's not cultural. It is something that must be adhered to. Further, it is in the pastoral epistles. That is something that we cannot deny because that's the only guidance that we have for the ordaining of men within the church. And then I said, now, it's not just the explicit statements if they want to disregard that, but it's implicitly said, and I underlined it like 15 times. The elder must be the husband of one wife. That excludes women right there. The entire passage on elders and deacons is in the masculine, the entire thing. And then it gives you at least four or five clues. The husband of one wife, the wife must be this. And as I said, unless he is speaking to people that are marrying women and women, which he isn't, then this is something that we must adhere to. To not adhere to that is a violation of scripture. And I finished up with the, I think the second person when I sent it, I finished up with the thought that if they think 
that they will stand before the Lord and he will say, it's okay, you violated my word, but a lot of good came out of it. That will never happen. There will be no rewards for our disobedience. In the areas that I am disobedient with the Lord in my life, I will get no rewards for that. Zero. If a woman thinks that she's going to be a pastor in a church and get a lot of people saved and have a great ministry and teach a lot of people Christianity, and then she's going to go before the Lord and say, well done, you did a great job. I'm going to let it go that you disobeyed my word. That will not happen. The Lord does not change his standard ever. Okay. That's just one example, but I was so struck by getting it too within like say, I think it was 45 minutes, maybe a little less, and then the third one. And I'm like, I guess I'm being taught something here. I better save this. Anyway, we need to make sure that we are obedient to the word. Now, I'm not saying that lady that's a female preacher isn't saved. I have no idea. That is her thing, okay? But if she is saved and she is being disobedient to the word of God, which is explicit, then she's not going to get a reward for what she's doing. Please consider that. And that's the same with you. If you are violating the word of God in some precept of your life, you will not be rewarded for that. And that worries me as much, doesn't worry me, but it concerns me as far as my conduct all the time. I think, Lord, you know, I need to adjust that. I need to not think that. I need, because these are things that we are going to be held accountable for. Okay? I find myself stewing over something and talking to my computer and things I probably shouldn't talk. Lord, I need to readjust. You know, help me out with this. I'm just, I'm so furious at this issue or that issue or, okay. You keep saying rewards. There's also. Oh, there's loss. Yeah, there, and that's what I'm saying. If it's not a reward, it's a loss. It's one or the other. There's none of this, you know. Okay, um, where was I? Christ counts them as such. Okay, no reward or they're an enemy, whatever. They are destined for a very bad end unless they repent. Repent means to change your mind come to their senses and call on Christ in truth. And the reason why they would have to repent in this case is because he's saying they're enemies of Christ. They already know the gospel. They already know what's true and they need to change their mind about it. Repenting doesn't mean stopping sin. It doesn't mean this or that or one thing or another. It means changing your mind. And in the mind change, you will have a change of the life as well. Okay, but these people uh, will go on. Thus, we have a distinction between the Judaizers of the earlier verses of chapter 3 and those of the antinomian heresy here. As I said, antinomian means no law. Okay, ah is the negative particle, and then so nomos is the word law. So you're saying this is a no law teaching. You've been saved, and now you can go do whatever you want. Okay, that is not true. That is untrue, okay? It is a lie. You are saved unto holiness. You are saved unto living for Christ in a life that should be emulating him. That's what you're saved for. The Judaizers were heretical because they rejected the full atonement and justification which is found in Christ alone. And they set out to establish their own righteousness. These people, on the other hand, now work against the other side of the cross. They claim that they are so fully justified in Christ that they have absolute freedom to work out and engage in any type of moral impurity that they wish. Okay, that is not true. Don't let somebody pull that over you and say that's what you're teaching when you teach eternal salvation. That doesn't mean you're teaching that at all. It means you're teaching what the Bible says, but 
there are conditions that need to be met in order for you to be in a right standing with the Lord, okay? There's a difference between the two. People will try to pull you into one category or the other. Don't let them do it. What is astonishing is that both of these groups have almost exponentially grown in size in the recent church. You see them on both sides of the aisle. The Hebrew Roots Movement has exploded in recent years, exploded, claiming that the law of Moses must be adhered to in part or in full. At the same time, the once strong and faithful churches and denominations of even the recent past have openly endorsed homosexuality, lesbianism, and every other type of moral perversion that they can think up. Pulpits have become the proclaimers of pervert parties, and yet all of this could be avoided if one simply picked up the Bible and read the warnings of Paul. Okay, I know those are strong words and it may be offensive to some, but this is the word of God. Go read what Jesus says on the last couple pages of the Bible about exactly this type of conduct, and you'll have to, yeah, you'll have to agree with it, okay? Yes, Jesus is full of grace and truth. Yes, Jesus is loving, but Jesus is also holy. He is righteous, and he is angry at our sin. Life application, I'm talking about the divine part of him. Christ came as a man to die for our sin. But the reason why he did is because there is wrath on the part of God against our sin. And so he revealed himself in both ways at the same time. I love you. I'm merciful towards you. I'm going to send my son into the world. And yet at the same time, he is the one that is going to judge you when you reject him. Okay? The God-man, in other words. Okay. Let's see here. Life application. There is peace to be found in Christ. But let us never use this grace to assume that we can then live in an unholy manner. We are to emulate our Lord who would never condone such worldly perversion. Important to remember. Important words. 319. Give me one second to turn there. You read it already, too. I'll do it again. Oh, yeah, please. <clears throat> their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. It's almost the same. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Very close on that one. Okay, <clears throat> concerning the enemies of the cross of Christ, of the previous verse, Paul now says that their end is destruction. This is set in contrast to the resurrection from the dead of verse 11 and of the right of entry into the new Jerusalem for the believer, which will be noted in verse 20. Instead of an anticipation, before I go on, what are we supposed to do with people that are living the way that I'm talking about right now? Correct if, them. It, well, if they're in the church, what are we supposed to do? Correct them. them. Out. Get them out. Okay? Get them out. Yes, you may be saved. That's between you and the Lord, but you are no longer welcome in this church until you stop doing this. Okay, that's, where is that? exactly said. Not the words, but the... the That's uh, chapter 5. Of 1 Corinthians, you're close. Chapter 5. 5, he got it. 1 Corinthians 5. That's okay. You can be wrong once. That's the first time he's ever been wrong, but that's okay. 1 Corinthians 5. I didn't mean to stop it, but it came to my mind. That is explicitly... Let's read it. It's one of the shortest Short chapters chapter. of mm -hmm. 1 Corinthians. It's so short. I love to read it because it's the great, great reminder of what we are to do. This is, this is what we're to do. Yes, you may be saved, and if you are, you're saved. But let me tell you what, buddy, you cannot do it in this church. 
okay, and I'm talking about whatever church you're in that you see this, tell them to get him out. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife and you're puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body, but <laughs> present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right here, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That means put him back in the world. Get him out of the congregation, put him back in the world for the destruction of the flesh. And here's your eternal salvation part, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He's going to be saved if he is saved. But get him out of your church because he is going to bring problems into your church which will never go away. They'll only turn into what we have in churches all around Sarasota right now. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, I gave the example in either the first or second sermon that I ever preached. is, And I think I've done it in this uh, class here. San Francisco sourdough bread. Oh, yeah. San Francisco sourdough bread. They put in yeast. He, he hasn't heard this. Listen to how little leaven it takes. They put yeast into San Francisco sourdough bread over 100 years ago. Now it's been 10, so it's well over 110, 120 years ago. They put it in. And for all of that time, every single day, they've taken that big lump of sourdough, the little bit of leaven, they put it in there, right? They made their bread that big, big thing, and they chop it up into loaves, and they cook it, and they send it out all over San Francisco every single day. And then at the end of the day, they take one piece from that loaf, and they cut it off, and they set it on the counter, and they leave. And the next day, they take that little piece of bread that was in that big lump, and they use the same leaven that was put in over 110 years ago every single day for over 110 years. That little leaven has leavened all of that bread all over San Francisco and people carry it home because it's so yummy. That little leaven has leavened all of the bread that's come out of that factory in San Francisco for over 110 years. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now I've lost my place and I gotta get back to it. So give me just a second here. That, that is the power of sin in our lives. And that is the power of sin in a church. Once it's in there, everything is infected. You must get it out. So he says, therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. That is from Leviticus 23. We were talking about that in the car today. Leviticus 23, the feasts of the Lord. There are three <laughs> pilgrim feasts. One of them is unleavened bread. It is our lives in Christ. The three pilgrim feasts are about the Lord, but they are us in the Lord. This is one of them. Therefore purge out the old leaven since you may be a new lump since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Passover leads into the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He died for our sins. The pilgrim feast pictures our lives in Christ because of him cleansing us. So he says, therefore, let us keep the feast. He's not speaking of the Passover. He's speaking of unleavened bread. He's speaking of our time in Christ. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness. You wonder why all that stuff is in there in Leviticus 
It's because it's important because it teaches us lessons about Jesus that are actually fulfilled in the New Testament. I got the most wonderful, only like a two uh, line email yesterday or maybe this morning. Anyway, this lady emails me, she's from Texas, and she says, I just want you to know, I was doing a general search on Leviticus because I didn't understand it and I wanted to do an in-depth study on it. She says, I am so excited about it. I'm, I think she said she's halfway through it. Thank you for the book of Leviticus. It means so much to me now. It's that important because it tells everything about it, it tells us about Jesus, okay? Therefore, let us keep the feast not with the old leaven nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, okay? He said that. Don't hang around with sexually immoral people. And now he qualifies it. Yeah, I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of the world or with the covetous or with extortioners or idolaters since you would need to go out of the world. He's saying if these are people that you know and they're your friends, hang out with them. Doesn't make any difference. They're not claiming to be Christians. They're just a part of the world. You are to be the light to them. That's what he's telling you. However, but now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside, those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside, but those who are outside, God judges. They're, they're not in Christ. So God's gonna judge them completely separately than those that have come to Christ. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. There you go. That is what we are being taught right here in this particular passage. It's just a great thing to repeat it all over again. So um, uh, where was I now? We read 319, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, this is set in, uh, yeah. Okay, so uh, uh, it, this is set in contrast to the resurrection from the dead in verse 11 and of the right of entry into the new Jerusalem for the believer which will be noted in verse 20. In, yes, instead of an anticipation of life, these enemies of the cross will be cast into the burning pit of the lake of fire. Their reward is one of perdition, as the Greek reads, not salvation. In other words, I'm sorry, in order to explain why this is so, he next gives three descriptions of them which reflects their very character and nature. First, he says, whose God is their belly? This is a further explanation of his words of Romans 16, verse 18. So, Romans 16, 18, their God is their belly. And I'm trying to remember what he said in 16, 18, and I'm just completely drawing a blank. So we'll go there very quickly. Romans 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 14, and 15. Oh, 15 is old. Okay, 16, 18. He says, oh yeah, for those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. Okay? The same idea concerning the appetites of the belly is given in 2 Peter 2 and in Jude as well. These people live for the temporary, feasting themselves now on that which can never fully satisfy, while forsaking the true heavenly meal, which will satisfy for eternity. Think of it. You eat your dinner, and 20 minutes later you're thinking, gee, I'm hungry, I'd like some cake or something, you know, or I'd like, it doesn't last. And these people are just eating, eating, eating the world. And the world will never satisfy that hunger. It will never satisfy it, okay? 
um, somebody gets married and he divorces. And then he says, I'm going to go and marry her and I'll be satisfied. And it doesn't last. And so he does it again and again. And pretty soon he's gone through 14 marriages and he's no happier than when he started because Christ was not the focus of the marriage. You're just eating and you're eating and you're never satisfied. Okay? The true heavenly meal will satisfy. Paul will give a contrast of this description to that of the believer in verse 21. He next says of them that their glory is in their shame. And you know what mom said to me a couple years ago, and I've repeated this at least four billion times. If somebody has no shame, you can't do anything about them. These people in Congress that don't have any shame, that are openly doing the things they're doing, you can't shame them. And because you can't shame them, there's nothing you can do about them. They are completely depraved in their thinking. They're gone. Unless they're willing to admit that what they are doing is shameful, you can't point at them and say what you're doing is wrong. Think of it. They're murdering little babies. Little babies. And they have no shame about it. And it doesn't matter what you do. They'll come back and they'll say that you are the offender. You are the offender. Because there is no shame left. Once shame is gone, there's nothing you can do with that person. It's over. Okay? So, um, their glory is in their shame. In Ephesians 5, Paul notes that there are things which are shameful even to speak of in secret. However... These perverse people actually glory in such things. Perfectly representing this are the modern homosexual pastors and preachers. They revel in their perversion and they openly avow that they engage in such abominable practices. They glory in defying the Lord who would save them if they would simply turn and be saved. But instead of this, Paul gives the final description of them by saying that they set their mind on earthly things. This state is in contrast to the thoughts of verses 13 and 21. We are to set our mind on that which is heavenly and eternal, not on that which is worldly and temporary. This contrast between the two is well described by Paul in Romans 8 verse 5. Might as well read it. Romans 8 verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Where are you going to set your mind? Life application. If this life is where our hopes lie, then our hopes will die with us in this life. But if the promise of God, which is found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is where our hopes lie, then there is a great and eternal reward which awaits us. May we think reasonably and rationally concerning our eternal destiny. This life is but a temporary breath. It is worth sacrificing. Is it worth sacrificing eternity for such a passing moment? Think of what it says in Isaiah. All flesh is as grass. It withers. As soon as the sun comes out, you can watch the grass. You know, my backyard. Oh, it's so beautiful and lush and green after a rain, right? And by four o'clock in the afternoon, if it rained in the morning, you can see where the sun is on certain patches of grass. There's no tree above it. And the stuff under the tree is green. And, and the stuff that's been in the sun for just a few hours is wilted. And it just looks, that's what God is comparing us to. We wilt that quickly. We think 80 years, oh, I got a long life ahead of me. It's done. It's not a long life ahead of you. It's a very short one that you're living no matter how old you are. Hey, 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 how's it going there? Hello, brother. Looks like we got something uh, 
Hot and in a box. Hot and in a box for us. All right, thank you. Hey, Vince. Fine, how are you? Uh, good, nice good. to see you. Nice seeing you too. You can pop it up. Just put it right there, it's fine. Good. Right there. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah, good. Enjoy, everyone. Thank you very Enjoy. much. You have a good God one. Bless. Be blessed, okay? God Say bless. hi to Waugh for me. I'll do that. All right. Good stuff. You're a good man, Tom. We, we appreciate you. We appreciate you. All right. You know what, though? The Bible says that there is none good. So when I use that, it's in a relative sense. Okay. <laughs> I don't want somebody to say, you called him a good guy, and we're, there's none are. good just, before just, the Lord. Just take the compliment. Take the compliment. <laughs> we appreciate you. All right. Be good now. Take care. I don't want somebody to email me saying, you call him good when he's just a guy. Okay. I understand. Okay. It's a relative term. I know it is, but some people will not take it that way. Okay. Uh, we're going to read 320 and then we're going to be done. So, but our yes. citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, and then we'll have one more to finish us up next week. Yeah, I, I don't think we'll get more of that, but maybe we will. This is a verse very rich in its content and meaning. First, there is an emphasis in the original of the first clause on our and on his. Secondly, the word citizenship is found only here in the New Testament. It is the word polituma, and it is a noun indicating a state or a commonwealth. You can see the word polit, like politburo or whatever, polity. All right. Rather than citizenship, the word appears to be speaking of an actual city which awaits us. Thus, it is probably referring to the New Jerusalem. Paul speaks about New Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem elsewhere. Galatians 3, is it? 4? Anyway, um, and then also in Hebrews. They, okay, the emphasis in this first verse, uh, the, yes, the emphasis in this first verse and the reference to the state which awaits is literally translated then as, of us, indeed, the state of heaven exists. The word exists, this is Vincent's word studies. According to Vincent's word studies, the word exists, according to Vincent's word studies, signifies actually exists. And the reference to the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ is obviously suggested by the thought that with it will also come the manifestation of the Jerusalem which is above. Okay, that is Vincent's word studies words right there. I forgot a, uh, what do you call it? Um, quotation mark. That's I forgot a quotation mark and that's why I was all screwed up is because I was reading something that should have been offset. Anyway, um, and the reference to the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ is obviously suggested by the thought that it will also come with the manifestation of the Jerusalem which is above. It is a delightful set of words given to us to revel in as we await the glory which is ahead and which already exists. We can now anticipate it in the fullest sense because of the work of Christ, which assures us of our entry into that wonderful city. This then is in contrast to the previous verse, which spoke of those whose minds are set on earthly things. So you got the people with their minds on earthly things. We're supposed to have our minds on that which is above, the city that is ahead. Let them have their party now. In the end, it will be swept away and forgotten. But our walk will be an eternal one in a land of delight and abundance. I can't wait to see what he's got. I just can't. I'm so excited about it. But, you know, I got some people that email me, I, I, you know, once or twice a week, and all they, they always finish with maybe today or something like that. I'm like, yeah, maybe today. We'll see. Whenever. It, it just can't be that far off now. I mean, right. it just can't be that far off. 
I, I'm not one to speculate, though. It might be another 50 years. But the way I just look at the world and I think, how can it be that far off? We'll see. Mom's going, oh, 50 years. <laughs> okay, next he says, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The words are intended to fill us with an actual longing and a great anticipation for that which lies ahead. What does this world hold that is one jillionth as wonderful as the glory which is promised to us? Instead, we should continually fix our eyes on Jesus and savor in our mouths should be that of an anticipation in what he has prepared for us. Not this earthly world, not the world that we're living in and consuming and getting hungry again moments later, but in what Jesus Christ has set aside for us. Of note in the Greek is that there is no article in front of the word Savior. Again, Vincent's word studies looks into the thoughts of Paul which are being relayed. He says, its emphatic position in the sentence indicates that it is to be taken predictively with Jesus Christ and not as the direct object of the verb. Hence, render it, we await as Savior the Lord. Therefore, we have a dual thought to be pieced together. Our city awaits us as a city which is prepared for us. But access to that city is dependent upon the return of Jesus as Savior. He is our Savior, and yet we await him as Savior. Everybody see that? With all that the title implies and with all that will accompany his final salvation. He is our Savior, but we're waiting for him as Savior. Okay? We know he's our Savior. We know we've been saved by him. But until it happens, we're waiting for him as Savior. There you go. Life application. Reading verses like this one should remind us. We can get one more. We'll finish the chapter. Should remind us to not get too entangled in the things of the world. Instead, we should direct our thoughts, hopes, and devotions to the Lord who has promised us so much more than what we now experience. Verse 321. Who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Oh, man, I hate to even do this. Are we going to be able to get this done? Well, yeah, we'll, we'll get it done. Okay. Who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Yes, we're going to be able to get it done. All right. Um, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ of the previous verse, it is he who will transform our lowly body. We're waiting for him as Savior. He's the one that's going to do it. The term in Greek is the body of our humiliation. Think about that. What we're in right now, we think it's so great. We look at people like Schwarzenegger and we say, wow, look, well, look at him now. Him He's falling apart, right? The body of our humiliation. Imagine what we have waiting for us. We have a form which at this time is weak, corruptible, and corrupt. However, this body of humiliation will be transformed into another form. Paul notes that it is the Son who will accomplish this transformation into the marvelous image which he now bears. This is referred to elsewhere, such as, Burke? 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Absolutely right. We're going to go there right now. What's that? About 47 or something. 
Uh, I'm looking at verse 1538 is what I put down. There's probably more, but uh, let's see. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. Okay, so that is referred to in 1 Corinthians 15:38, where the term God is used. God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. Therefore, this is another of the countless such in scripture references to the deity of Christ Jesus. He says that it's Christ who's going to do it here. He said that it's God who's going to do it back in 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, Christ is God. Okay? If you just take everything in its context, you will be able to see that. If God gives the body as he pleases, and yet it is the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body, then he is God. This transformation is so that, Paul's words, it may be conformed to his glorious body. The term in Greek is the body of his glory. Now think of it, the body of our humiliation, the body of his glory. See the contrast? Wonderful. It then is set in contrast to the body of our humiliation, which we now bear. The form itself will be changed and we shall be like him. John tells us this also in 1 John 3, verse 2. I can't wait because I'm finally going to be handsome again. Wow, this is going to be wonderful. Let's see here, 1 John. Like, yeah, I used to be. When I was a kid, I was, I think, you know, you don't have to ask my mom, but I bet you she would say I was kind of a handsome kid. She's, Not a, she's remaining quite, she's very, very quiet. very quiet. Maybe I wasn't. Maybe I was fooling myself. Okay, beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Burke is quoting that from memory as I'm reading. Okay, uh, the marvelous transformation will be from a state of humility to one of glory, which is according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things to himself. That's Paul's words again. What is now frail, easily harmed or destroyed, and which is corrupt and in a state of humiliation will be excuse me, according to the same power by which Christ will subject all things, bringing them, bringing them into order and harmony which they were originally intended to be in. Vincent's Word Studies notes that it is more than merely subdue, it is to bring all things within his divine economy, to marshal them under all under himself in the new heaven and the new earth, and in which we shall dwell in righteousness. Hence, the perfected heavenly state, as depicted by John, is thrown into the figure of a city, an organized commonwealth. The verb is thus in harmony with Philippians 3.20. The work of God in Christ is therefore not only to transform, but to subject, and that not only the body, but all things. That's Vincent's word studies who said that. Very flowery, very nice, but very precise. All things. Life application. Yeah. Romans 8.29 go. go ahead, read it out loud. Oh, you do it. Oh, okay. All right, Romans... No, well, that's true. They probably can't, but it would give them a reason to pull out their Bible and read it, right? So I won't begrudge them that. I'd be happy. Say, hey, go find out what Burke just read you. Romans, i got to get back here. Romans, I know what 828 says, but I'm trying to remember what 829 says, and I'm struggling. So, oh, yes, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Wonderful. Conformed. 
conformed. We're going to be conformed to his image. If you heard that, I'm sorry. I get that air stuck in there and it comes out as not a burp, but it's like something that sounds like it. And I got this constricted esophagus and boy, you get me talking a lot, which isn't uncommon and that happens. Okay, so let's see here. Life application. Chapter three of Philippians closes out with these marvelous words of assurance and even of great expectation of the glory which lies ahead. Joy for the present hope, I'm sorry, joy for the believer is not merely the absence of pains and sorrow. Rather, it is the ever-present hope which we possess because of the work of Christ and the glory which lies ahead. I'm going to read that again because a lot of people have pains and sorrow and they think that they're not living in joy. Joy for the believer is not merely the absence of pains and sorrow. We may have those and we can still have joy because it is the ever-present hope which we possess because of the work of Christ and of the glory which lies ahead. Our current body may be broken, filled with pains, or incapable of standing up to the surrounding pressures we face. But what lies ahead will be whole, filled with glory, and capable of lasting throughout eternal ages. Let us not weary in anticipating the great glory which lies ahead. It is our blessed hope. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to look into your word and to think on it, to contemplate it, to seek it out and to understand what you're telling us. And we thank you for the chance to just learn more about what things are like in the heavenly realms, what Christ is like now, and to contemplate what it'll be like for us. We don't know, but we can think on it. And whatever we think, we know it will not even be close to what you have prepared because it's going to be wonderful. We're going to be like him when we see him. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Lord, we pray for this pizza here. We thank you for the people that helped pay for that. And uh, we want to thank them personally through this prayer right now that uh, their great graciousness is much appreciated. And so, Lord, please bless it. And we thank you. We praise you and we exalt you. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's see. Um, it, I wrote it down. I think I still have it here before we finish up. It was Maya and um, uh, Dave and Katie, Maya, uh, Melissa, Pass Morales, and um, uh, I think that was all of them. That uh, It's a little left over from last time, and so we're just going to give them credit for the whole thing. And thank you all very much. Let me back this thing up. Um, do, 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 break. Yes, okay.